Now, if you have your Bible with me, turn to the Acts of the Apostles, and we're going to read the first 16 verses in Acts chapter 9. So our Bible reading is Acts chapter 9. Read the first 16 verses. Let's hear the Word of God. And of course, we are reading from the authorized version. It's a most faithful and most reliable translation of the Holy Scriptures. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Street, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And have seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call in thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own inerrant and infallible word. Now tonight, I'm continuing a series of messages that I started last Lord's Day on the amazing conversions in the Bible. And tonight I want us to consider the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And it's amazing that in all the 19 years of my ministry here in Duff, I've never actually preached a sermon on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
Now, it's widely accepted, especially in Christian circles, that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is one of the most notable conversions in the whole of the Bible. Now, of course, there are many amazing conversions in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts. You've got the conversion of Lydia, the seller of purple, the conversion of the demon-possessed woman in Philippi, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Uh, But one of the greatest, and I believe one of the most well-known is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And in Acts chapter 9, we have actually the first of three accounts of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul. The many records of his conversion in the book of Acts has to be one of the most important events in the life and witness of the church since the day of Pentecost. It's also regarded as one of the great infallible proofs of the truths of the Christian faith. Remember, Saul of Tarsus was a deeply devoted Jew. His pedigree is mentioned for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through to 8. Furthermore, he was an ardent opponent of Jesus Christ and the gospel of free grace. And yet this persecutor of the Christian became a preacher. This blasphemer he became a believer. This persecutor, as I've said, became a preacher. This fighter became a follower. This murderer, because he was, in essence, that, became one of the greatest missionaries uh, who, who, who did a, a, a great work for God. This man became one of the greatest Christians in the world, one who, who suffered greatly uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. He turned his back in a life of prestige, I believe, a life of position within the Sanhedrin Council, uh, 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 turned his back on, no doubt, uh, fame and fortune, simply to answer the call of God to be a preacher of the gospel. He ended his days after 30 odd years being a convert to Christ as a faithful martyr of the Lord Jesus, a one who was greatly used of God in his day and generation. Now, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus demands explanation. And how do we explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus as is recorded for us in the Bible? Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And the answer is the marvelous, matchless, miraculous grace of God. Listen to his own words in 1 Corinthians 15 and 10. I am what I am by the grace of God. He he was saved by the grace of God. He he suffered for the cause of Christ by the grace of God. He spoke for Christ by the grace of God. He he served the Lord by the the, uh, grace of God. Acts 9 records for us the precise moment and the circumstances when this man by the grace of God was changed and transformed. I believe that Dr. Luke must have viewed the soul of Tarsus' conversion as a a watershed event in the life of the church because, remember, he was led by the Holy Ghost to repeat the story, not just once, not twice, but three times in the unfolding history of the expansion of the early church. And I want us to think of three thoughts tonight. As you think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, three things. The unlikely candidate for conversion. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, Verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, 
and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. You see, humanly speaking, young people, Saul of Tarsus was not a likely candidate for conversion. I'm loath to say this, but I, I, I couldn't think of anything better. We could compare this to hearing the news that the like of Jerry Adams had got converted and had become an evangelist to the unionist, loyalist, Protestant community, as well as his fellow Roman Catholics and Republicans. You think of the Saul of Tarsus' past life. This man was consumed with one passion. And the passion was this, to murder and to imprison and eradicate every follower of Jesus Christ from the earth. Before he was converted, in his unconverted days, he lived to persecute the people of God. He, he was like a wild animal. He, he, he was like a, a roaring beast. He trumped up false charges. He imprisoned men and women. He was the godfather of the persecution of Stephen. When Stephen was murdered, he orchestrated it. And the people that threw the stones at Stephen came and laid Stephen's stones at his feet. After Stephen's death, he, he broke up the Jerusalem church. And now here he is, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And what does he do? He wants to go 125 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus to find any followers of Christ there and bring them bound to Jerusalem to stand trial. Every Christian who had not broken away from the many synagogues that were dotted throughout the known world, the high priest had jurisdiction over those synagogues, even in Damascus. And this man wanted to go there, and his aim was to destroy Bible-believing Christianity. He had a heartless cruelty. Notice the words here. Whether they were men or women, he didn't care. He had such hatred for Jesus Christ and the followers of Christ. He, he felt any suffering that he might afflict on men and women or even young people. It was right. He believed it was pleasing to God. As I've already said in Acts seven fifty eight, And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. In fact, later on, when he wrote to Timothy, he said he was a blasphemer and a persecutor. 1 Timothy 1 and 13. And an injurious person. In other words, he was a dangerous individual. Murder in his heart. Letters in his pocket. Authority to arrest and imprison as many as be of the way. The way of Christ. This man had no thought of being saved. He had one passion, to destroy the gospel. The most unlikely candidate for conversion. And then, in a wonderful way, God in free sovereign grace stepped into his life. You see, if this man had been left to his own desires, he would never have wanted to be saved. He would never have sought the Lord. 
Isn't this what the Bible teaches us in the book of Romans? In Romans chapter 3, we read, As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. And there's none that doeth good. No, not one. None seeking after God. None were seeking after truth and righteousness. None were seeking after salvation. This man was seeking slaughter. He wasn't seeking salvation. And yet there was a glorious message this man was unaware of. And it was this, Luke 19 and 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And even though he wasn't seeking after God and had no interest in being saved, wasn't even aware how deep died a sinner he was, God was seeking after him. Isn't that true of God right from the beginning of time? Remember in the Garden of Eden, he came seeking Adam. Adam wasn't seeking God. God sought Adam in free sovereign grace. Adam, where art thou? You see, left to ourselves and our own will, we would not seek after the Lord. But God in grace was seeking him. And God in grace came to where he was. And God in grace changed and transformed him. And I have a message tonight for you young people if you're outside of Christ. God in Christ is seeking you. Seeking to change and transform your life. Seeking to reveal himself to you. that, That you might know him. That you might have a relationship with him. Do you realize tonight that out of Christ you're under a death sentence? Uh, Out of Christ you're under God's wrath. It's hanging over you. And yet in an amazing way, God in marvelous grace can come to where you are and change and transform you. And that's what he did for this man. He was the most unlikely candidate to conversion. There's a little story that's told about a man in the United States of America. He was an infidel. He, like Saul of Tarsus, had the same passionate aim to destroy Bible-believing Christianity. He he wanted to destroy the testimony of every Christian in his area and certainly destroy the testimony of a local gospel preacher that he hated and despised. Now, strangely, this man fell foul of the law. He was guilty of treason. He was sentenced to death. And this minister whose testimony he sought to destroy... This minister traveled 70 miles on foot, no horseback, no carriage, on foot, walked 70 miles. Thought, wonder how long it took him. And he went to George Washington and he pleaded for this man's life. And you know what George Washington told him? Your plea for your friend is not going to be granted. And the man said to Washington, he's not my friend. That man is my greatest enemy. Let me tell you what he did and said about me. Let me tell you how he tried to destroy my church. Let, let, Let me tell you how he tried to destroy my testimony. And after speaking to George Washington, George Washington said, with such a great plea of grace, deserves a great pardon of grace. And I thought of that. You see, that's the essence of the grace of God. It's more than God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is unmerited favor to undeserving, hell-deserving sinners. And here's God in spite of Saul of Tarsus' pass, in spite of his ungodly lifestyle, in spite of the fact that he's got murder in his heart, God extended grace to him. 
It was grace in spite of his depravity. It was grace in spite of his defiance. Look at verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, young people, understand something tonight. There's an illustration that, that, that's being used here. I, I want you to think of a farmer. And a farmer has got a, a stubborn beast. And it won't move, say, out of the stall. Or won't go through the, the gate. Or won't go into the, the, the cow shed. And, and how do we get it in? How do we get it in today? Well, you probably take a bit of a, a blue pipe, uh, and plastic pipe, and you, you, you beat the, the, the beast until you get it to do what you want. And of course, it doesn't always do what you want. But way back in Paul's day, what they did was they had a thing called a goat. It was a stick with an iron point on it. And they prodded the animal. And you see, that's what Jesus Christ was doing with this man of Saul of Tarsus. This man was doing his own thing. He was living his own life, independent of God. And in the midst of that independence, in the midst of his sinful depravity, and even in the midst of his defiance against God, the Lord come to him and goaded him, pricked his conscience, at times made his life uncomfortable. Maybe filled him with doubt. Maybe filled him with guilt. Maybe he had sleepless nights. And yet all the while Saul of Tarsus was fighting against it. Just like the cow would kick against the, 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 the goad as it was being prodded. Lashing out with its foot. Well that's what Paul was doing. He was happy in those days to be fighting against the Lord. He felt he was doing well. He felt he was doing the work of God. That God would be pleased to me because I'm persecuting these so-called Christians. Yet all the while, he was kicking against God's pricks. He was a deeply religious man. How do I know that? Listen to what we read in Philippians chapter 3. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteous, was in the law blameless. Listen to verse 7. This is what happened when he got converted. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Years ago, there used to be a Church of Ireland minister in Nocklemuckley called the Reverend Mann. And uh, he one time preached in the congregation there in Nocklemuckley. And he said this, there's many in this church and they're very religious. But I want to tell you, you're also deeply sinful. Very religious, deeply sinful. And that, that could sum up the apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. He was a very religious man. A, a man connected and committed to the Jewish religion. A, a man with a religious pedigree to boast of. And I've, I've already read that to you there um, from Philippians chapter 3, 5 through to 7. Religious, I said, but he wasn't regenerate. He wasn't born again of God's spirit. He, he, he was a man of blind devotion. A man engaged in religious service, but he wasn't saved. A man who was honored among men, yet this man knew nothing of a sure and steadfast hope in the gospel. In actual fact, this man was doing the work of the devil. He, he, he was of his father, the devil. This man didn't have a vital, life-changing, transforming relationship with the God of heaven. This man wasn't ready for heaven and home, yet it was this man, this persecutor, 
despite his past depravity, despite his past defiance, despite the fact that he kicked against God's pricks, the grace of God came to this man. The grace of God took hold of him. The grace of God changed and transformed him. And I'm saying tonight, the same grace can change and transform you. See, your salvation or mine doesn't depend on the fallen will of man. It depends rather on God's sovereign will. It depends on the power of God. It, it, it depends on the grace of God. See, Saul of Tarsus believed that he was one of God's chosen people. Circumcised the eighth day. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrew. A Pharisee. Touching the law blameless. And yet on the Damascus road, this man was knocked to the dust. This man had the pride knocked out of him. This man saw a light, heard a voice that struck him blind. And he was introduced to Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus gave marching orders as to what he was to do next. The most unlikely candidate for conversion. Notice something else here that really struck me. The unique circumstances of his conversion. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 3. And as he journeyed. Now remember he's traveling 125 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. And it says he came near Damascus. Where did he get converted, young people? Here's the answer. Near Damascus. Now I don't want you to miss that. Because that's very significant. Damascus was where he wanted to go. Remember, he was going there to cause havoc and heartache in the church there. Can you almost picture yourself watching Saul of Tarsus and those with him journeying to Damascus? And they come near the city. Maybe they're stopping at the brow of the hill. Maybe they're, they're two or three miles outside the city and they see it in the distance. And there he's rubbing his hands with glee. He's thinking we'll soon be there. He's saying to those with him, now, no mercy, man. Let's go in here and snuff out this, these Christians and this church. And yet what he didn't realize was behind the scenes, there was one at work and sovereign free grace, one who was in absolute control, one who knew not only what was happening in Jerusalem, but knew what was going to happen in the next precise second and moment. Because at the very last minute. As he drew near to Damascus. And you can think of the fear and trembling of the saints there. That knew he was coming. Because Ananias had talked about it. What he did in Jerusalem. And what he was coming to do in Damascus. And at the very last minute. There was one stepped into his life. And knocked him to the ground. Left him terrified. It says, look at verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. You see, I believe he had no idea as he came near Damascus that anything was going to happen. And yet as he neared Damascus, there was a supernatural light. He heard a voice. It was the voice of Christ. There was a revelation of who was speaking to him. And this man has changed and transformed. As I've said, the persecutor became a preacher. The blasphemer, a believer. The fighter, a follower. The murderer, a missionary. To destroy the work. And now he's going to declare the work of Christ. Now he's going to defend that work until his death. What had happened? 
God in grace had stepped in. God in grace took hold of the man and changed him and transformed him from the inside out. Let me encourage you tonight. God can and does step into situations. Remember Daniel said, but there's a God in heaven. Don't leave the Lord out of the picture. Remember the Lord can step in to any situation. Isn't that true in life? Isn't that true in the witness of the Christian church? You think of those who have risen up to hinder and harm the work. Individuals, sadly even professing believers, that their actions, their attitude, their announcements, they've all been designed by the devil to harm and hinder the work of God. And it's been a, a devastating situation. And then all of a sudden, God steps in. And deals with the situation and, and, and changes the, the harmer and the hinder, or else takes them away out of the scene. Did you know that the individual called Charles Darwin, remember he wrote the book, The Origin of the Species, what was it, um, 1858 uh, it was released, and what was God's answer? 1859, the year of revival, the year of grace. He was an advocate, Charles Darwin, of the evil theory of evolution. Young people, it's just a theory. It's the opinion of men. But did you know on his deathbed, that man who had wrote that book, An Origin of the Species, the man who would you to say, well, well, he's a candidate for hell. On his deathbed, did you know he cried out to God for mercy? He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He, 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 he professed faith and trust in the name of Jesus Christ. We could really say about Darwin, he was plucked as a brand from the burning. Doesn't the Bible say, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved? Convert it at the last minute. Wasn't that true of the dying thief? One of those thieves on either side of Christ was gloriously saved. Jesus said today, shall thou be with me in paradise? Sadly, the other died as he lived. I believe one was saved that none might despair. Is there such a thing as a deathbed conversion? I believe there is. But don't depend on that. Because only one was saved that might be despair. The other was lost that none might presume. Because the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And what I'm saying tonight, God is still the same. In the life of an individual, in the life of a church in trouble, God can step in and deal with the troublemakers. Even in the life of the country. Remember, history is his story, young people. You you think of Dunkirk. We believe at the World War II, when Hitler was about to murder thousands upon thousands of uh, soldiers on the beaches of Normandy and uh, I, I believe it was Churchill that thought well only 20 or 30 thousand of them could ever be saved the rest are going to perish that's what they calculated and it seemed an impossible situation and a day of prayer was called and do you know that in the evacuation of De Kirk, many were actually saved The record books stand 335,000. Ten times more than what Churchill thought. Why? Because God was working behind the scenes. God stepped in. Where was he converted? Near Damascus. Just as he got near enough, God stepped in. 
I want you to think of when he got converted very quickly. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 13, he tells us when. In the third record of his testimony, he says, At midday, O king. Here he is before King Agrippa. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. At midday. He didn't say, Lord, wait five minutes. He didn't procrastinate. The Bible says, he that being often reproved and hardness his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and not without remedy. We know the place. It was near Damascus. And we know the time, the precise moment in his life. Midday was special to him. He, he never forgot that. Wasn't it midday when the Lord Jesus hung on the cross? The sixth hour is noon to the ninth hour at 3 p.m. When he, when he suffered the wrath of God as he offered himself a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Remember the woman at the well? It was midday when she talked with Christ and had the conversation about her need of salvation. See, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. It was midday. And let me ask, was there a time, a precise moment in your life when you can look back and you can remember not only the place, but remember the time and say, yes, it was at that moment when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Notice the way. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. He tells us there, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. A light from heaven. Certainly, he was converted. Instantaneously and immediately, he saw a light from heaven. And I want to tell you who the light was. He saw the light brighter than the created sun because the light was Christ. Isn't Christ called the light of the world? Wasn't it Christ that came and talked to him? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Don't you like that? John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. John 9 and 5, I'm the light of the world. It's repeated twice. It's, it's the only one of the I am's in John's gospel that is repeated. Why? Because without Christ, men are in spiritual darkness. And without Christ as the light of your life, you'll not know him. You'll never have a relationship with him. You, you, you'll never know God. Men need the light of God's truth. Men need the, the, the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They need God to come and shine into the darkness of their heart. You think of the many tonight in relation to the gospel. I can't see it. I don't feel my need of it. I don't understand it. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually dark. They're spiritually dead. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Every unbeliever who says, I can't see it. I don't understand it. I don't feel the need of it. The God of this world, the devil himself is at work in their life. And, and he has blinded their minds. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And that's what Paul needed. And that's what happened to him. Also, he heard a voice. He was called by name Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? He heard the voice of Christ. And you may not hear the audible voice of Christ. As Paul did in the Damascus road. But the Lord Jesus nevertheless is still speaking. And I'll tell you how he speaks. He speaks via his word. And every time you read the Bible. 
Every time you hear the gospel preached, every time you read a tract, every time someone talks to you about your need of salvation and repenting of your sin and receiving Christ, that's the Lord Jesus speaking to you. And when he speaks to this man, he confronts him about his sin. What was this man's chief passion? Persecuting the church. And what did Christ say? Why persecutest thou me? In other words, he confronted him about his sin. And this man, his eyes were opened. He had a bombshell revelation. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. This man had fallen to the ground. His pride was smashed. He, he was trembling. He's now in the presence of Messiah. He, he's in the pre- presence of the Prince of Life, the Lord of Glory. And what does he do? He submits to the voice. Notice what he says there. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Here's the way he was converted. Why? The answer is given to us in verse 15. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's safe to serve. God had a work for him to do as he has a work for you to do. That's why he wants to save you tonight. He was safe to suffer. He was not to be perplexed or anxious about the suffering that he was going to have to endure for the sake of Christ. Because his suffering was a faint reflection of the suffering of Christ for him. And I believe he was safe to speak. He was going to speak to the children of Israel. He was going to speak to the Gentiles. He was going to speak to the kings. And we know he he did speak to certain kings. It's recorded in the Bible. A chosen vessel. Safe to serve, suffer, and to speak. I want you to notice one final thing, and our our, our time is gone. The unchannable, sorry, the the unchannable, Challengeable change by his conversion. You see, this man's course of his life was dramatically changed. He knelt as an old sinner near Damascus at noonday, having saw the light and heard the voice and had his eyes opened and submitted to Christ. And he arose from his knees a new saint. You know the Bible says if any man be in Christ he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. That this man before he was converted all that mattered to him was keeping the law. When we were in Israel recently we met a number of Orthodox Jews. And if you see them there in their um, dress and attire one of the things that they have hanging from their belt or their pocket is a multitude of little strings. And I remember thinking to myself, well, why is that so significant? Who wants to walk about the streets with a bunch of strings hanging out of their pocket or off their belt? But do you know that every one of those strings reminds the Jew of the law he must keep? Some of them have 300 strings, some of them have 618 And you see, the Jews to this day, the Orthodox Jews, believe keeping in the law merits a place in heaven for them and saves their soul. And when the Apostle Paul got converted, there was an unchallengeable change by his conversion because the direction of his life had changed. No longer was the keeping of the law all that mattered. All that mattered for him was Christ. Christ was center place. He said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
He met Christ in the Damascus Road. And his life was greatly changed. As I've said, the persecutor became a preacher. The fighter, a follower. The murderer, a missionary. The blasphemer became a believer. Now let me ask you as we wind this up tonight. Has there been a, a change in your life? Because there was a day, a time and a place where you were converted. And you met the risen Christ. And you realized that you were a sinner. And that you had a soul and you needed to be saved. And the time to be saved is now. Because the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And as you hear the voice of God calling to you tonight, don't put it off to tomorrow. Don't think about next week. Don't think about your friends or your family. If you believe that God has come and spoken to you through his word, and brought to your new, your mind, brought to you the news of your need of Christ, and you have never received him or trusted him as Lord and Savior, then what we're saying tonight, your life can be changed. Is Christ all that matters to you? Do you love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Are you depending on Christ alone for salvation? Keeping the law didn't merit a place in heaven for Saul of Tarsus. It doesn't merit a place in heaven for anyone. The Bible tells us the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law shows us how sinful we are. And when we get a revelation of our sin, then we realize we need a savior from all sin. As the hymn writer said, there's a savior from all sin if you'll only let him in. Will you let Christ into your heart tonight by, by kneeling before him? By faith, by, by calling upon him, by receiving him as Lord and Savior. And have your life changed and transformed. That as far as direction is concerned, some of you may have an idea of what you're going to do with your life. But the Lord may have a different plan and a different idea. But it all starts when you get converted. Here's an amazing conversion and a likely candidate. Here's the circumstances in which he was saved. And here's the change that was brought about. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you tonight.